Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and we'll be sharing from God's Word this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can meet me in Matthew chapter 26. Meet me there in your Bible or on your phone, Matthew 26. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you, and it's page 996 in that Bible. I grew up in uh, Burlington, Ontario, and I went to Nelson High School. Woo! Anybody? Nelson High School, Burlington, Ontario? No? You're all from here because no one ever leaves Essex County. You just stay here forever. I went to Nelson High School, and Nelson was named after Lord Nelson, who was a British admiral in the 1800s, and our teams were called the Nelson Lords, and it was a school, it was a really great school. I was very grateful, especially in retrospect, uh, to look back and go, it was just a very solid school, wonderful teachers, it was very well-rounded, it had a really great athletic program and a really great arts program, and it always did very well academically, and I had some life-changing teachers there, which I hope everybody gets in high school, at least one, and... Uh, so that was the school I grew up at, and I was involved in theater uh, more in high school. I was more artsy than uh, jockish, if you couldn't tell. And as I was uh, going through different uh, seasons of theater there, one year uh, the school was putting on a production of Cabaret, which is a, sort of a classic Broadway show uh, about uh, Berlin in the mid at the end of the Second World War. And so Cabaret is kind of a well-known show if you're into theater at all. And so we were putting it on and auditions were happening. Now there was someone in our school who was a member of the football team. He was a Nelson Lord and he was a uh, big, huge guy, really jacked, muscular. I had grown up with him. I'd known him for a long time. And so I knew him a bit in grade school. And then in high school, we just kind of went in different directions. So I, he wasn't a friend or anything. But, uh, but he was on the football team. And he was tall and super intimidating. And, uh, and he was just kind of your stereotypical high school football player. We, used to, we joked afterwards, if you were making a movie about our high school and you needed like the bully jock character, this was the guy. He just perfectly was that. And he was kind of a jerk and he was uh, picking on the younger students and he would get drunk on weekends and get into fights and was just really sort of radiated intimidation and was really full of himself and arrogant. And so we were doing auditions for this show and he walks in to the auditions and it was like the last place he should be, right? Like it just, it just didn't quite feel right. And so we were in the auditorium of the school, and so everyone was sitting here, and you would come up on stage, and you would sing a bit of a song, or you would do a few lines, and you had to do it in front of everyone, which is kind of intimidating. But if you want to be in the show, you're going to have to do it in front of everyone, so it's good practice. And so we're there waiting, and then he walks in, and he steps up onto the stage, and just, again, just tall and muscular, and he has a kind of like a smirk on his face, and you're like, oh, this guy's such a jerk, so smug, look at that look on his face. And He's just here to make fun of us. He's just here. He's going to make a joke, and, and he's going to make fun of us, because why else would he be here? And he got up, and he came to center stage, and he said, my name's Steve, and I'm going to be trying out for the part of Cliff, which was the lead role. He's trying out for the lead role. What a jerk. Some of us have been waiting for a lead role for years, and he was just going to come in and make fun. And so he got up, and he came to center stage, and he's got that little smug smirk on his face, and the music starts, and he lifts up the microphone, and he starts to sing, Why should I wake up? And this beautiful, classical Broadway voice came out, and, and there was feeling behind it, and our jaws dropped, and he got the lead role. 
and nobody cared because he was so good, and, and he nailed it. And uh, throughout the process, you know, he joins the cast, and he was this natural leader, and he had this really sensitive side, it turns out. There was this artiste inside uh, that was sort of covered up by all the muscles. And <laughs> he was incredible in the role. And we, we just laughed as sort of as we looked back. Remember the audition? Like, he'd be get a standing ovation on opening night. We're like, man, remember that audition and how he just completely caught us off guard? And it was just a good lesson, just like our mamas taught us. Don't judge a book by its cover, right? Because people can surprise you. People don't always fit into neat categories. They don't always fit into the boxes we put, in, we put them in. Right? My wife, I know better than anyone on this earth. She knows me better than anyone on this earth. She still surprises me. She doesn't always fit into the way that I thought she was. She can still surprise me. I know my kids as well as anyone can know somebody. My kids still surprise me. People don't always fit into the boxes or the categories that we put them in. People can still surprise us. And if that is true about people, how much more so will that be true about God? Right? If people who are mortal, who we can get a pretty good handle on, who we can see and feel and, and touch, if people can still surprise us, how much more a God who is omnipotent, who is omnipresent, who is omniscient, who is almighty, who is transcendent, who is so much greater than what our mortal minds can really comprehend, that God, like why should he fit into neat little categories and boxes for us? Right? I get a bit nervous when anyone talks too authoritatively about, you know, God is exactly like this. Um, and it's not that we're not seeking that out. It's not that we're not trying to find him. And the amazing thing about that otherworldly, incredible, supernatural God is that he actually wants to be in relation with us. He actually wants to walk with us. He actually wants to draw near us and gives us the ability to understand at least something of who he is and to be able to learn more about him and to walk with him more intently. But we're going to be talking about prayer today and how we connect with that transcendent all-knowing God, and how do we uh, spend that time and what that does for us. So we're in Matthew chapter 26. Let's take a look at our text this morning. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping again because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. So if you have been around church for a while, you might be familiar with that story, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to the cross the next day. The cross is rapidly coming towards him, and he is wrestling with what is about to come. Of course, understandably, he is struggling with this. And so Jesus, as he gets ready to face everything he's about to face in the cross, uh, takes some time for prayer. And often when we talk about this passage, the message would seem to be pretty clear, where Jesus says, like, wake up. Wake up, guys. Wake up and pray. 
Don't get complacent in this. Don't get lazy in this. Don't get sleepy when it comes to prayer in your life. Jesus says, can't you give me an hour? Can you give me an hour to, to pray with me, to pray for me, to connect with God together? Can you do that with me? And we have a week of prayer coming up, and that is our challenge. Come give Jesus an hour. There will be eight sessions of prayer coming up this week. Find one and come and connect with him uh, and with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. But Jesus is, is at the end of his earthly life and before the resurrection. He's, at, he's heading into his death. He's heading into the cross. And he is carrying the weight of all of this. And so he does what we're all called to do. He prays. He seeks God. He gets away. And he, he spends that time. And... The danger for us if we've been around church for a while, and you've heard me say this before, is that sometimes these stories can become very familiar to us. And they can become so familiar, we know the story, we know the moral, we know the, the key phrase, we know the words, that we can kind of lose sight of the impact of the story. We can just, oh, I know that already. We can kind of miss it. And so with this story, the impact that I don't want us to lose this morning is that here is Jesus, who we believe is God in the flesh. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is one with God the Father. Jesus being God has taken on flesh, and Jesus, who is one with God the Father, who is connected to God the Father in heaven, who knows God better than anybody because he is God, and who says, I'm the only one who's seen the Father in heaven, this Jesus is asking God to change his plans. Jesus is asking God, do we really have to do this? Is there a different way we can do this? Can you change this course that we are on? Is there another way that this could happen? And, and my premise today that I'm throwing out to you, which we're going to revisit throughout today, is that I just can't believe Jesus would be asking God to change his plans if it wasn't possible for God to change his plans. Right? If Jesus knew that God just carved everything in stone and nothing ever changed, why would he even be asking? It must have been at least, at least theoretically possible that God would shift the plans that he had in mind or else Jesus wouldn't have even been asking, right? Because Jesus, being God, knows God. And so the fact that Jesus is asking God to change his plans must mean that it is possible, at least, for God to change his plans sometimes, and that's where we're going today, about how prayer can actually cause God to shift uh, the way that he had planned to do something. God will respond to the prayers of his people. And not everyone believes this, and I already had a couple people get annoyed with me after the first service, so uh, it's not a set-in-stone, crystal-clear thing. This is a disputable matter, but um, the danger when we view it as God has already determined everything and there's nothing that will ever change, when God has already decided everything and there's no deviating from that, the danger of that mentality is then, well, why pray then? Why bother? Why bother praying? Why bother pressing in? Why bother seeking him? Like, what's the point? If God has already predetermined everything and, and there's nothing we can do about that, then it's just very easy to fall into a sort of fatalism that says, well, then, okay, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. And I'll just go along with whatever happens. And I will throw out there that I think Scripture actually lays out a very different view of what prayer is, a very different view of what that relationship looks like. I think Scripture, to me, would clearly lay out that God can change his plans 
based on whether or not his people pray. That God will say, I'm going to do something, and then people will pray, and God will say, actually, I'll do something different then. He will respond to the prayers of his people. God speaks to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18, 7 to 10, and he says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed, and if that nation, I warn, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. So here's God saying, I have a plan, and I'm going to fulfill that plan, but if there's repentance, if there's prayer, if you call out to me, then I will change that plan. I won't do what I originally planned to do based on whether the people pray and repent and respond or not. We see an example of this in the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah's a great book. It's just four chapters. It's a good read. There's lots of gold in there. But God speaks to Jonah, the prophet, and says, go to the city of Nineveh and tell them that judgment's coming. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. It was an incredibly wicked place and God's justice uh, has been filled up. God has had enough of the evil that he's seeing. He's coming to put an end to the evil. So 40 more days and judgment is coming. And Jonah, you know the story. There's some sidetracks and some adventures on the side, but eventually Jonah does go to the city. He gives that message. And the Bible says the entire city, every single person, city of 120,000 people, every single person uh, falls on their face. And their king says, put on the sackcloth, put on the ashes. Let's repent before God. They even got the animals in on the act somehow. Uh, even the animals were brought in with sackcloth and ashes. And they were just so desperate that they cried out to God and they asked for his forgiveness. And God's word says that when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. He changed the plan. He didn't fulfill what he said he was going to do because the people repented and prayed. There's another example when Israel is walking through the wilderness. And uh, it's just a, an interesting story. They're at Mount Sinai. And scripture says that God showed up physically somehow at the top of the mountain. There was thunder and there was clouds. Uh, this glory cloud covered the, the top of the mountain. There was fire. And Moses went up into the glory cloud. And God gave Moses the law there and, and spoke to him about God's standards for his people and it says that the people of Israel saw the thunder and saw the smoke, and they were terrified. They were witnessing God with their eyeballs, and they saw that, and they felt the fear and terror. And then Moses is up there for a while, and they say, man, he's taking a long time. Well, let's just create something else to worship. Even with the glory of God right there. And so they create a golden calf, and they begin to worship the golden calf and so Moses is up in the glory cloud, and in Exodus 32, God says, I've seen these people. They're stiff-necked. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Again, there is this warning of what God is about to do. And the Bible says that Moses began to pray and intercede. He began to repent on behalf of his people. He began to cry out for mercy. And the Bible says, then the Lord relented. The Lord changed his plan that he had just given out. There's another story of Hezekiah in uh, 2 Kings chapter 20. And Hezekiah was a good king. He was a good guy. Not all of Israel and Judah's kings were that good, but Hezekiah was one of the good ones. And he loved the Lord and he followed the Lord. And so as Hezekiah is coming towards the end of his life, uh, God gives him a heads up. This is what the Lord says, 2 Kings 20 verse 1. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover, which sounds terrifying in some ways, but it was actually a mercy. It's a, it was a heads up, just so you know. Get your stuff together because I am about to call you home. 
And the Bible says Hezekiah was grieved by this, and he cries out to God for more time. He cries out to God uh, just to, to bless him and to heal him and to restore him. And in response to those prayers, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayers and seen your tears. I will heal you. I will add 15 years to your life. So there are other examples. Those are just a few. But there are times clearly in Scripture where God says, this is what I'm going to do. And then people pray or repent or cry out or all of the above. And God says, all right, I will do something different then. I won't do the thing that I originally said I was going to do. And Jesus obviously knows this. Or why would he bother crying out to God in the garden? Scripture says three times he went. He went back and he went back and he cried out to God and he cried out to God, God, if there's any way to not do this, if there's any other path this might take, if there's any way I don't have to suffer the way I am about to suffer, Jesus must know that God does change his plans sometimes in response to the prayers of his people. And so Jesus cries out uh, in the middle of the garden, in the middle of the heartache, and in the middle of the, the fear and everything he is facing, he cries out to God and says, God, is there any other way? And with that, he prays, but I trust you, your will be done. And that's an important part. But he asks, he goes to God and asks, and I just don't think he would do that if it's not possible that God sometimes changes his plans. And when we talk about prayer, it goes all the way back to the garden. When God creates Adam and Eve, uh, he doesn't create them to just be his creation, subordinate to him. Uh, it, is, it is what we are, obviously, but he creates them to do this with him, to help steward creation with him. Uh, so in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Like, God is not just creating worshipers. And we sometimes talk about why are we created? Why did God make us? And the sort of classic Christian answer is he made us to worship him. And he did, of course, but that's not all. He created us to rule with him. And scripture says that when Jesus returns, we will reign with him. That is part of what we are called to in eternity. And so when God created us, it wasn't just to create worshipers who were subordinate, who were going to worship him. He wanted to partner with us on this. He wanted us to participate with him in creation, to participate with him in this life. And in that, he actually gives us influence into how things happen. And we call that place of influence prayer. That God actually says, hey, talk to me, ask me, seek me, right? Let's do this together. This is what I'm planning. But hey, I am open. I'm open to changing that depending on you and your involvement or lack of involvement. But from Genesis 1, which we just read, all the way up to the end, whenever God wants to do anything in Scripture, whenever he is up to anything, he looks for a person to partner with. Every single time, he looks for a person to partner with. He says, who's going to do this with me? And it's this picture of a parent who just wants to spend time with their kids. Right? We have done renos around the house, and you probably have too. And my son Matthew is four, and he likes to come along with me. And, you know, he wants to screw a screw in, and he wants to feel what that's like. And, I mean, if we're being really honest, he's not that helpful. We talk about prayer being a place of partnership with God. It's not an equal partnership. He's still God, and we're still very not. 
But when Maddie comes with me and we're fixing something together or working on something, it's the doing it together that's so valuable, right? It's that I love spending time with my son, and I love learning more about him, and I love him learning more about me, and I need to help him because he doesn't really know what he's doing. But prayer is a, that's just a, a little snapshot of prayer. It's not that God needs us. It's not that he needs us in any way. He's God. He doesn't need us at all, but he actually invites us to this place of influence where we actually get to have a say to some extent in how things happen. He says, come and ask and watch what happens. Greg Boyd puts it this way. He enlists our input, not because he needs it, but because he desires to have an authentic, dynamic relationship with us. And when you see that and you understand that, then all of a sudden this picture in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus saying, guys, you couldn't give me an hour? Right? And it's, it's not about just you fell asleep. It's that, man, like, come connect. Right? Come be in relationship. Come pray with me. Come pray for me. Right? Give me an hour just to spend time together. Give me an hour uh, just to connect with me. Because as we connect with God, it's, it's not just about the asking. Mesh said this at the end of the first service. Uh, it's not just about the asking. It's about what he does in us through that. I'm stealing your wrap-up, Mesh. Sorry about that. You're smart. You'll think of something else. Um, <laughs> And if we understand that, it's not, prayer doesn't become a chore in the same way. It doesn't become a, a discipline or an exercise that we, you know, that we feel like we have to do or that we should do. Prayer becomes a place of, oh, wow, I get to influence heaven. I get to connect with my heavenly father. I get to ask him to intervene in whatever situation I am facing. It, it becomes much more of a relationally driven event. Right, Sarah and I have date week every week. It's scheduled every week. Once in a while, we have to miss it. But date night scheduled every week. It's not a chore. It's a highlight. And it's carved out time for us to spend time together. Right? And prayer can become that place of connection and that place of influence. And when Scripture gives us pictures of prayer, uh, there's a few different examples. We talked about this one a little bit last week. Genesis 32, Jacob, the patriarch, has a wrestling match with God. Literally, he wrestles with God. I don't mean metaphorically in prayer or through fears or doubts like we all wrestle with God sometimes. He literally face-to-face -face wrestled with a, a physical embodiment of God. And scripture says he wrestles through the night, and he's not backing down. And God sees that he's not backing down, so God wrenches his hip. And even as he wrenches his hip, Jacob is still not backing down. So finally God says, all right, that's enough, I gotta go. Wrestling match is over. And Jacob says, no, actually, wrestling match is not over. I will not let you go until you bless me. I'm not letting go. This is not over. And you can read that and go, wow, it's pretty lippy to get with God Almighty, you know. You're looking God in the face, and God's saying it's time to go, and you're saying no. But God doesn't throw a thunderbolt. God doesn't get mad. God says, all right, here's your blessing. Like he saw there was something in Jacob that wasn't going to quit. I will not let you go. And can we pray like that? God, I'm not quitting. I'm not going to pray twice, and when it doesn't happen, get frustrated. I'm not going to pray for a month and then say, where is God if this prayer is not getting answered? I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to let go until the blessing comes. I'm not going to let go until the blessing comes. When Jesus taught on prayer, he gave us a couple of pictures as well. Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow. That there is a woman who is a widow, so she doesn't have any uh, man in her life to defend her or, or provide for her. And so she's in a rough place in the culture of that time. 
and she has a conflict with someone, and she goes to the judge to look for justice. And the Bible says in the story that the judge is a heartless man. He's a cruel man. He's a godless man. And this woman comes to him for justice, and he says no. And she comes again, and he says no. And she comes again, and she goes back, and she asks, and she asks, and she asks, and she asks. And finally the judge says, well, I, I'm a cruel man. I'm a godless man. I'm a heartless man. I don't care about this woman at all, but... She is wearing me down with her persistence. And don't read God into the judge. That's not the point of that story. The point of that story is us. We are the widow. And Jesus says, this is how you should pray. He starts the parable by saying, Jesus told them a parable to show them how they should always pray and never give up. And then he tells this picture. He gives us this picture of a woman who just would not take no for an answer. She asked and she asked and she asked and she asked and she asked. And the end of the parable, the picture is that if this is how a heartless, godless judge can be moved, that he can change his plans, that he can change what he has already decided, that he can be moved by persistence, how much more your heavenly father who actually loves you and has compassion on you and wants what's best for you. If persistence can move even this man, then that is how we should pray. Jesus tells another story in Luke chapter 11. It says, imagine you're lying in bed and your friend comes over and bangs on the door at two in the morning, middle of the night, and says, open up, I need some food. I don't have any food in my house. I'm hungry. And your natural reaction would be, go away. It's two in the morning. I'm not getting up to get you. We can deal with this tomorrow. But he says, if your friend knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks, it's going to be hard to get back to sleep. Knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks. Eventually, you're getting out of bed. Eventually, you're giving him some bread. If for no other reason than to shut him up, right? Just, just do that. And again, don't read God into the, the sleepy man. The most important part of that story is us knocking at the door. And Jesus finishes that parable and then says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. But don't just knock once and give up. Knock, and knock, and knock, and knock, and knock. And these pictures of prayer that we see in Scripture, the wrestling match where we say, I'm not letting go. I don't know why the answer hasn't come yet, but I'm not quitting. I am not letting go until the blessing comes. And then these pictures that Jesus gives us of prayer where he says, when you pray, when you come before your heavenly father, act like a friend with boundary issues or a nagging woman. <laughs> or a nagging man. She happens to be a woman in this story. But these are the pictures that we're given. Right? Like, don't stop. Don't get frustrated. Don't fall into despair. Don't fall asleep in the garden. Stay watchful. Keep praying. And, and Scripture uses words like pray ceaselessly, pray fervently, pray passionately, pray, pray deeply, pray from the heart, pray with other people, but, but pray, 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 pray. And keep knocking and keep holding on. And keep going to the, the judge until you finally get the answer. Just keep at it. Because God can be moved by our prayers. And there's a huge debate. It's a disputable matter, theological discussion about, well, does God actually change his mind? We're not going to get into this today because it's, it's kind of too deep for a sermon. But, 
does God actually change his mind? And this is where a couple people were frustrated this morning, I think, because, you know, if God is really all-knowing, then how can he actually change his mind, right? We can change our minds, and usually we change our minds because we don't have all the information, and we get new information, and then we change our minds. But God is not like that, we believe. God is all-knowing. He is omniscient. And so if God is all-knowing, can he really change his mind? Uh, and therefore, when we see these stories in Scripture where God seems to change his mind— you know, he must have known already what was going to come. He knew Moses would intercede. He knew that uh, Nineveh would repent. And so he's not actually changing his mind, even if it's using that kind of language. And so that's one point of view. And the other point of view is that God has actually given us freedom that is real freedom. That God has created us not as robots and that he maybe doesn't always know exactly what we're going to do because that wouldn't be real freedom. And so if that is the case, then, uh, then God can have a plan but be willing to, to, you know, leave that plan open depending on how people respond. And they would push back and say, that doesn't make God less all-knowing. That actually makes him more all-knowing. Because he has to know what's going to happen if I pray. He has to know what's going to happen if I don't pray. He has to know what's going to happen if other people pray. And he has to have all those avenues figured out as well. And so when it comes to the answer of which one of those is right, I have no idea whatsoever. And we're not going to dig into that. And I just want to encourage you to dig into that. If that's something that interests you, the deeper stuff is sometimes fun to dig into. And uh, I'd love to have coffee if you want to talk about it more. The thing that we can all agree on, wherever you land in those two viewpoints, is at the very least there are times where a plan is set and then people pray and that plan changes. How much God knew or free agency or whatever is maybe up for debate, but that part is, is pretty clear. And so in 2 Chronicles 7, when God says to his people, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. What's the most important word in that? If. If. It's not an unconditional promise. That's a conditional promise. And the, the heart behind it seems to be God saying, I want to do this. I want to heal. I want to forgive. But I want you to engage with me on that. And that can be tough because sometimes people say, well, why doesn't God just do it then? If he wants to do it, then why does he want our prayers? If God wants to heal the land, why doesn't he just heal the land? Why is that if in there? But it's not that hard to imagine if we understand that just like me with my kids, I want them to grow up. I want them to own things. I want them to, to be mature. I want them to participate. I just want to spoon feed them. If I spoon feed my kids at six months, that's one thing. If I'm doing it at 22, I probably failed as a parent somewhere. Right? So we give our kids toys, and they are responsible for those toys. And we give the kids a nice bedroom, and they're responsible for that. And so they are going to clean it up. They're going to participate in these things. And God is looking for us to participate with him. And for whatever reason, he has chosen that. You know what? I will limit my response to the prayers of my people because he is looking for us to engage with him. That's what he wants. So Jesus in the garden knows this. He must know this, being God. And so he cries out to God, knowing that there are times where God changes his plans. And yet at the same time, Jesus also must have known that the cross had to happen, right? The cross had to come. He must have known really the answer was probably going to be no. And yet there was something in him that asked anyway. 
and didn't just ask once, but asked and then went back and asked again and then went back and asked again, God, if there's any way we don't have to do this. There was nothing more carved in stone that had to happen than the cross. And Jesus asked anyway. So what does that say about us? Jesus, knowing the cross had to happen, asked passionately. Scripture says in Hebrews, with loud cries and tears, he cried out to God. And if Jesus knew the cross had to come and asked anyway, for us, we don't always know what God's up to. We don't always know what's up. And we need to respond the way Jesus responded. Now, the logical end of this story, of course, is that Jesus, for Jesus, the plans didn't change. And we all, no doubt, can relate that there have been times where we have prayed for something and it didn't happen. It didn't change. Right? A door shut and it stayed shut. Or something we were looking to happen didn't happen. And there's disappointment that goes with that. And there's frustration and there's questions and there's all of that. And I don't have a really easy answer for why that happens because I don't think Scripture gives us a really easy answer for why that happens. And it's hard to avoid cliches when we talk about this because we say the things that we say, which is, you know, God had a different plan or God knows what we don't know or, you know, every shut door is an open window. And, and those are true. All of those things are true. They're not always comforting when someone is disappointed. But when I look at the book of Job, and Job went through crisis, and he went through suffering, and, and Scripture's full of stories of people going through suffering. When we look through Job's eyes and what he went through, and when God shows up at the end of Job's story to talk to him, uh, Job is questioning why, 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 why. And God's response is, I am God, and not every why is going to get answered in this life. And that is not intellectually satisfying, and that bugs me because I want everything to be intellectually satisfying. But not every answer. God says, I'm God, and you're immortal, and you're not going to understand everything in this life. And there is a certain extent where we have to make our peace with that. But that should never limit the ways that we pray. There's so many things that happen in our lives where we, you know, we talk to people, and I'm included in this, you have chronic health issues or you have chronic relational issues or, or, or drama in your life. And so often we just accept it. We just say, well, this is just going to be my life. This is just the thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about, that, that there are trials that are going to come and that's just the way it's going to be. And I believe that that's true. And at the same time, it doesn't ever say we have to be okay with them. It doesn't ever say that we should stop praying into them. And we always said in the Pentecostal church, like if you're looking for healing, come on up to the altar for prayer afterwards because today could be the day. And sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't. But you come back like a nagging widow, like a friend with boundary issues. You come back again and again and again and again and again. We say, God, I'm not quitting. I'm not giving up. As frustrating as it might be sometimes, I'm holding on to you. I'm coming back until I get the answer. And if we believe that this is how we're supposed to pray, some of these pictures and the story of Jesus in the garden that we got where he went back over and over and over again, if we believe that we can actually move God's heart into a different direction for his plans, then we're going to pray very, very differently. If we believe it's carved in stone and we can't do anything about it, we're going to pray differently there, too. But if we believe that Jesus calls us to this and says, don't let me go. Don't let me off the hook. There's a verse when Israel was in captivity that says, give the Lord no rest until he brings you back to Jerusalem. Like, don't let him off the hook. God says that to them. Don't let me off the hook. Hey, keep coming. 
Keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And trust in my faithfulness and trust in my goodness. And if we understand prayer this way rather than as a ritual or an exercise that we should do, then we're going to pray very, very differently. We have an email address here at Meadowbrook Church called questions at meadowbrook.ca. It's in your bulletin as well. If you have questions about today's message or anything you want to talk about, people do write in with questions or comments or uh, follow-ups, and we have great conversations about some of the deeper things. And I'd love to grab coffee with you sometime if you want to talk about those things as well. Prayer is the place of partnership with God. And again, not an equal partnership because he's God, and so he, he wins. And he reserves the right to answer when and how he likes. But he invites us into this place of connection with him and communion with him and relationship with him. And he opens himself up enough to say, hey, come and influence me, right? These plans could change. Come and influence me and pray fervently, ceaselessly, passionately as you seek after me. Don't let me go until the answer comes. Don't let me go until you get your blessing. So we're starting a week of prayer this week, and again, there's a session Monday to Friday, every night, 7 o'clock, and then lunchtime, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at noon. Come out to one. You don't have to say a word. You can just come and watch. You can come and participate silently. But come and pray with us, because we want to start to put this in practice as we start 2017 as we pray together. And just as we close, would you stand with me, please? Just as we close in worship, we talked about last week, worship is a form of prayer, and so let's offer this up to God as we get ready to close. You know, it's prayer is awesome. And some of us have been praying for lots of things in our lives for a long time. And we haven't necessarily got the answer we're looking for. I've been praying for my family to find Jesus for over 20 some odd years. And nothing's changed. However, I will say this. God softened their hearts in many ways. And some of you are on the cusp of giving up. I encourage you to stop thinking that way. And you continue to pray for whoever it is or whatever it is in your life. Because the beautiful thing about prayer is this idea that we get to spend time with Jesus in his presence, and we become changed from the inside out because of that. See, it's a privilege to pray with Jesus and to hang out with Jesus. I think sometimes at the church we think prayer is this formal thing we only do on Sunday mornings, and the Bible says to pray without ceasing. So when you think about your day and your life, driving in the car, whatever it is, pray. That's what we do. That's what we connect with God. Pray in your day-to-day, every day, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And the more we do that, the more we become like Christ, and the more we can change from the inside out. So as you're thinking about giving up because you feel like, Jesus, I've been praying for so long, don't. Don't give up hope because God's in it with you. And if you've come this morning and your prayer life is just kind of petering off and you're just going, man, me and God just don't connect. I want you to talk to somebody about that because God's saying, come, come. And if you come this morning, you're just trying to figure out what this means to know Christ, One of the greatest ways you get to know God is by praying and simply saying that, Jesus, I believe in who you are. And I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that you are Lord and you will be saved. What an awesome, awesome promise from Scripture. And that's a great thing about Jesus. He is faithful and he is holy. Let's pray together. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're with us. And God, as we think about prayer this week in our life, I ask that you would help us to wrestle with you as we wrestle through the things in our life. God, give us courage not to give up. And when we spend time with you, let us just know your presence. I pray your Holy Spirit would come beside us and we'd know that you are with us in that moment. And that, God, 
you would take these things we talk about. Help us not to pray through a laundry list of items. You're not a vending machine, God. But God, it's about relationship with you. And Father, for those who have come today that have given up this hope to pray in you, Jesus ignited them faith and remind them of the depth of love you have for them. And they would not give up hope. And they'd come back into your presence. And God, for those today who are coming and seeking and trying to figure out who you are and do you exist and if you're real, God, I pray you speak to them as well. And they'd reach out their heart to you. So God, thank you for this morning. I thank you, Jesus, that you taught us to pray in Scripture. Matthew 5, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Thank you for being here. If you need to pray or talk to anybody, some of us will be available up front. Have a great Sunday, and hopefully we'll see you this week at prayer.